before we get growing in the next one, just there's a couple points I wanted to make, and we'll transition and talk about Satan a little bit. Any announcements or prayer requests this morning? All right, let's start off with a word of prayer. Bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for another day that you've blessed us with and a day that we can gather together as your family. We're thankful for the church that meets here at Dalreda. And we ask that you continue to watch over us and bless us as we strive to do what we can to spread the borders of your kingdom here in Montgomery and around the world. And as we encourage and edify one another as we still are here on this earth, we are so thankful for your son Jesus and for the sacrifice that he gave on the cross for our sins. And God, we're thankful for the great plan of salvation and the other plans that you have laid before us as your family that is living here on this earth. We ask that you be with us as we strive to follow after your word. May we do it in a way that's pleasing to you. May we not add to it. May we not take away from it, but try to follow as much as we can those examples and commandments that we see in the New Testament. God, we know that there are many sick around us, especially uh, uh, among our midst here at Dalreda, and we ask that you please bless them, be with them, help them to regain their portion of health so they'll be able to rejoin us when they're able. Lord, more than anything, we ask that you bless those who are sick spiritually, and that you will help encourage them to see exactly what they should do, help us to reach out to those who are lost and those who are um, who aren't here with us anymore, as we know they should be, and help us to encourage them in any way we can and tell them how much we are concerned about their soul. And God, we ask all these things through Jesus' name. Amen. We uh, ended last week talking about God, and uh, we were talking about what, how we should follow Him, what can we do, and, and how should we serve Him. We went over several different things, and and I think we kind of got into this as the last points that we uh, talked about here about studying God's Word. We got There's only one way to know His directives, and that's from His Word. That's how God speaks to us. That's how He lays out His plan of attack and how He gives us those directives in our service of Him. And so, uh, real quickly, um, with respect to the, uh, the last couple points that I wanted to make about our Commander-in-Chief, uh, being God our Father, if you haven't been with us the previous lessons, uh, is that, first of all, what does our commander do? First of all, he's not going to leave us alone in battle. Our commander's right there to fight with us. He's faithful to help us while we fight against Satan. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, talks about the strength that he provides to us. And he says, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. He strengthens, He protects us, He, he cares for us. He sends His angels to minister to us. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14. Uh, we're going to get into angels in the battlefield as we go throughout this lesson series. I think studying the angels of the Bible is a very interesting study. And uh, it's something that I think we kind of skirt around because we are a little fearful about getting entangled into some of the supernatural things. Uh, some of it becomes speculation in this world, and we'll get into those things as we talk about the angels and demons uh, that are part of this spiritual war that we are embroiled in. But uh, one thing we do see in the New Testament is the mentioning of, of angels, and that there are angels that God uses to give us, send us, 
comfort to minister to us, as Hebrews 1 talks about. We'll try to explore that concept as to what it might include uh, as we go through it, but we do know that the Scripture says that. Uh, We also know that He is faithful. Our Commander is faithful in fulfilling His promises to us, just as He promised Joshua back in Joshua chapter 10, verses 6 through 14, to to extend that day so that they would be able to conquer and be victorious. God's going to follow through with His promises to us as well. He's going to allow us to fight those battles that we need to. In some respects also, as you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 13, that God is not going to allow us to be tempted more than we're able to bear, more than those things which we can deal with and uh, you know, kind of muddle through in our lives. God knows what our, our limits are. And that's one thing that should be comforting to us in understanding that He will be faithful to us and allowing us not to be tempted beyond those things which we can bear. Now, again, he's not saying we'll never be tempted. Don't be misconstrued here. And don't, don't let anyone misrepresent to you that once you become a Christian that you all of a sudden have got this magical force field surrounding you so that you'll never falter or fail or, or fall prey to temptation. That's not going to happen in life. But what God does promise us, what God does tell us, is that he will make sure that we are not tempted beyond those things which we can bear. We may not know our breaking point, but God does. God does. God knows what we can handle. And so as we strive and as we work, we can do so knowing that we have a faithful God there with us, alongside us, fighting in battle, fulfilling those very promises that he has made to us. Will our commander surrender? Well, the obvious answer that we can all think of is no. No, there's no way God's going to never, ever, ever surrender. It's not going to happen. Uh, you, can, you can be assured that God will be standing there steadfast in the battle against evil and against sin as long as this world exists. The Lord loves us. He cares for us as his people. Hosea chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 8 kind of chronicles the idea of the care that God had for his people even when they turned their backs on him. You see what God would do and what extent he would go to in order to bring back the people to him. Hosea there in verse 8 says, How can I surrender you, O Israel? God says, I will not give you up. I will not let go. Regardless of what come what may, what decisions that we may make, those choices that may go down the wrong path, God will remain faithful because he loves us And he cares for us. Now that doesn't mean that we're always fighting alongside him. We've got to understand that with regard to the battle that we're here embroiled in. Now the the concept here is that God's position does not change. We may change our position. God's never changing with regard to where he sits, what side he's on and what he's doing. He always loves us. He always cares for us. And if we are willing there to be a part of him and fight alongside of him, he's there with open arms waiting to receive us. Kind of reminds me of the image of the prodigal son, now the father there, as he's waiting for the son to come home. You know, he's constantly there on the front porch, in my mind, looking out in the distance to see if his son's ever coming home. You have that image of the father who loves and cares for his son, regardless of those bad decisions that the son has made. Regardless of the fact that, that son has decided he is going to leave his father's side. He's not going to be with him any longer. But that God loves and cares him so much, he's always there looking out for him, wanting desiring, wishing, if you would, that his son would come back. And when he sees him from the distance, that the son has in fact returned, 
the image of God running toward him rings true to me. Because that's what kind of a commander-in-chief that we indeed serve is a commander-in-chief who loves us and cares for us, who always desires that we return to service along his side. There's no need to surrender. We've got to think in our minds. It's not just that God won't surrender, that God won't give up, that ultimately there's no need for us to surrender either because if we align ourselves with God, our commander-in-chief, then we will have the victory in the end. Paul really speaks volumes of this as you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 there at the end of the chapter of, of what, what does it mean to be there with God? What does it mean to strive with every ounce of your body to remain true and to remain faithful. Where he says there in verses 56 and 57, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, verse 58, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, knowing that your toil is not in vain, in the Lord. There is no need for you and I to surrender. Our lives, if they remain true to God, if we are steadfast in our lives and we are always abounding, we are immovable, our toil is not in vain in the Lord. Brother Verl. It is. You know, from the very first prophecy, that's right, we are the winners. And, and in the end, Book of Revelation is one of those books that, that you know the outcome before you should even begin reading it. I think it's very interesting because of that. And regardless of all the confusion of all the imagery that is there within the book, you're right, the underlying theme or the underlying point or purpose of the Book of Revelation is to say we win. We win. Well, really, God wins. If we're with God, we win. Because that's, that's kind of the bottom line. With it. From the very first prophecy made to Eve in the Garden of Eden uh, with regard to what's going to happen in the end, you see the, the idea of, of the, Satan's head being smashed or stepped upon and being conquered. Right? That's the imagery there that's, that's kind of encapsulated there as you see the fall and as God prophetically talks to the serpent or really to Satan in the form of a serpent there. And you see the idea that he tells him from the very beginning of the fall of man that this is not the end of the story. It may be the beginning of the trials and the tribulations of man, but it is not the ending of the story. The ending of the story is we win. You never win, Satan. Regardless of how much you want to strive regardless of how much you want to tempt and try humanity, you will not win. God says, I am victorious. And I think that's resounding there. The book of Revelation is a great book. I think we get really too caught up in all the imagery because if we, if we stay focused on the purpose and the principle there of what that says about the victory that was found inside of Christ Jesus, that book takes on a whole new focus really for us because it is a triumphant type of a message that John writes on behalf of God there as he is 
writing to all the churches and trying to admonish them and encourage them to remain steadfast. To go back, like Ephesians, the Ephesian brethren there, uh, there in the first part of Revelation, wants them to go back to their first love. The whole rest of that book explains why. It explains why do you go back. That's because in the end, God is victorious. Satan is not. Satan is not. Good little segue, I think, with regard to our next lesson. Nobody has any more comments about God. Let's move into his counter-opposite. Yes, ma'am, go ahead. You know, that's very, I never really thought of it that way, Neil, but I think that's a good point to make there. Is there was a reason why God's face was turned away from Jesus on the cross. Um, and that's because he embodied, he took upon himself all of the sins of the world. He was bearing those sins for us. Yeah. Excellent point. I hope you all heard that from Ms. Nell, but the idea of God not forsaking us is exemplified and shown really of what Jesus had to endure on the cross and the fact that there was a moment in time when Jesus took upon the sins of the world that he was not able to be there with God. There was a break, so to speak, of their connection possibly because of that sin that he was taking upon the cross. I think you're right and the, the forsaking of God to Jesus for that moment is something that we, we don't ever have to experience. And it's never going to be on God's choice. Does that make sense? It's never God's decision that he will forsake us in our lives. It's going to be our decision. That sin that we choose to do, those things which we choose to follow is what separates God. It's our choice that may separate us from God. It's not on God. Uh, it's going to be ultimately God wanting us to be there. He wants to support us. Uh, and because we have made those choices in our lives to have sin in our lives, God can't be a part of that. And we have necessarily broken that bond that we would have with our God. That's kind of the way we have. Now, Satan, let's go ahead and get on to the enemy of the camp. I, I've encouraged you all to read Job, and I think Job kind of speaks volumes with regard to Satan. There's a lot of things that we could talk about with regard to Satan. Uh, there's a story told back in the Civil War, American Civil War, stories told about uh, the Battle of Antietam and General Lee's battle plans there for his raid into Pennsylvania and on into Maryland. They accidentally fell, if you read the story, into the hands of the opposing General McClellan. Uh, they actually found, I was reading last night just to confirm that this was indeed a reported story, and in fact, I read, read it even further last night, that they actually found the battle plans rolled around some cigars. Uh, that were there left with a general's name on it. And they were supposed to be delivered where they were somehow discarded or left behind, and they found those battle plans. Well, ultimately, you know, in that battle, Lee kind of saw, found himself on every corner of the battle, a little bit caught with uh, superior numbers. He was forced to fight the Battle of Antietam under a lot of disadvantages that he had not anticipated. He really didn't understand why. And probably many years later until it was really revealed ultimately how they were able to try and, and concoct a, a battle of opposition to Lee there to cause 
much more havoc than he had anticipated. But McClellan's energy and courage was still not equal to the emergency and the opportunity of Lee's men. And they, or he would have made this battle the crowning victory of the war. Instead, Lee escaped, ready to recuperate for other battles. McClellan had Lee's plans. He knew exactly what Lee was going to do, but he really failed to put all of that information into practice when you look at it. He had the upper hand. He had the advantage. But in the course of that battle, he did not use that information to the greatest and fullest potential. Now, it kind of begs the question for us, what kind of information do we have against our opponents? I mean, what kind of information do we have as to what schemes will be concocted against us that will be challenging us on every hand as we encounter our daily existence on this earth? I mean, what are those things which we are going to be embattled with because of our enemy? I think before you get into every battle plan possibility, we must first answer the question, who is our enemy? We can know who our enemy is and how he operates, and hopefully we will have a better grasp and a, and a better understanding so that we'll be able to maneuver uh, and combat those maneuvers that he throws at us. I think if we study these, we'll have the advantages that we need to be able to be much more equipped and better prepared and hopefully avoid the mistake as General McClellan did in the story in the Civil War because we will be able to use that information to really stand up against those wiles of the devil that we talked about in Ephesians. You know, we are embattled in our daily lives, and we've tried to emphasize this through our study so far of looking more at the spiritual and how it connects with our physical lives. There is an interconnection there that is very difficult to explain sometimes, but it still challenges us. It makes us understand that there are more facets to these things than, than beholds the eye, right? Uh, there, there's a deeper and a more intricate meaning behind things. Uh, why does temptation occur? Who brings about those temptations? What causes us to sin? Is it our own free will or are we forced into predicaments where we have no other option? Well, I think a lot of those questions can be answered by looking at the Scriptures. And what I'd like to do first and foremost is look at the question that we have today is, who is the enemy of the camp? And of course, I've already put the answer up there. It's Satan. Uh, plain and simple, there's really no avoiding the fact that Satan is the enemy of the camp. He is the one leading the revolt against God's people. He's the one who provokes us and has provoked God's people all the way from the very beginning. And if you look over in Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1, he showed, uh, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. You've got these polar opposites here. You've got these, these, these diametrically opposed parties in every spiritual predicament we find ourselves in. Now, again, it may not always be Satan, and I want to get into that as we go on. In our minds, a lot of times that's who we personify all the bad things to be is going to be Satan. Uh, there are some very important points to make with regard to Satan and the fact that he is limited unlike God is not limited. So it's really not like those cartoons always portray where you have God or an angel on one shoulder and Satan on the other shoulder. Every decision that you make in life necessarily because I would argue with you and I believe there's conclusive proof that Satan can't be everywhere. So that means you and I cannot be having Satan challenge us on op opposite sides of the earth at the same time. I don't think it's possible physically or spiritually. Satan is not God. 
And so it's not technically that way, but it really in our minds portrays that kind of a situation every time we confront a decision, right, or a choice in our lives. We think, okay, what is the right choice or what is the wrong choice? What is good or what is bad? What is moral or what is immoral? And a lot of times we have that good black and white type of a comparison of diametrically opposed viewpoints or parties sitting up on our shoulders, whispering in our ears, trying to persuade us one way or the other. Now, again, I wish it were that simple sometimes, because to be quite honest with you, I know, and I hope you probably can sympathize with me, that there are times and predicaments when I'm not sure what the two sides of the argument are sometimes. You know, you struggle with that predicament in our lives. And so it may not be as easy as that simple uh, illustration kind of causes us to think. But Satan, for sure, is the enemy of the camp. He is the one standing opposed to God. He is the one leading, I believe, the revolution against God or the revolt against him and all that God stands for. And although we would think that this might be an easy answer with regard to there's a large group of people who really don't even think that Satan exists. You can get online and do some searching and find out that there's some people who don't believe that there is a Satan. They don't believe there is no, there's no devil. And although he's not some real physical person or man with a pitchfork and a pointed tail, as we see used so much as a symbolic illustration of who Satan is, there's plenty of biblical evidence to prove and to show that indeed Satan does exist. Satan does exist. Satan is a spiritual being. So again, going back to our arguments and our illustrations and, and discussion about spiritual versus physical, Satan is spiritual. Satan is spiritual. Now, there is no doubt throughout time that Satan has manifested himself in physical form, in physical ways. We see that in the Garden of Eden, whenever he is in the form of a serpent. We see the fact that he appears to Jesus in some way, form, or fashion as he tempts him there in the wilderness, right? We see that. Right? There is some physical formation there of who Satan is. Now, never is he described, of course, as being in a red suit or uh, having pointy ears like a devil or or having some pitchfork tail or pitchfork in his hand with a pointed tail. Those kind of forms and those descriptions are never given. So there is some physical recognition, though, by individuals that Satan does there and Satan does exist or, or is present. But the, and the Bible shows plenty of evidence, though, to show that he does exist for the verb. right yeah it's it is a chosen and we're going to get into the fact that the angel the fact that he is an angel i believe from the scriptures and i think you can point to pretty conclusive circumstantial evidence that satan was an angel uh there that that fell from heaven so to speak but that's exactly right i mean there, it's not a physical manifestation or a physical description that sets him apart from other angels but in fact it's his spiritual condition his choices uh the things that he had has has decided to make in his life that differentiates him from other spiritual beings. Uh, and in fact, there are other spiritual beings that join him alongside. And we'll talk about that later on as well. Uh, the fact that there are angels that have gone with him. But all scriptural evidence is the fact that he is not just a spiritual being, but he's one who has this constant struggle with God. And he leads a struggle with God. He leads a battle and a fight for our souls. And there's a reason behind it. Why does Satan do those things? 
well, it, it would be my opinion and my conclusion that Satan fights for our souls in order to try and keep us from God. He knows what God wants. He knows exactly what God desires. He knows that God wants reconciliation with man because of his incredible and immense love for man. And he's going to do everything he can to try and put a blockade between those two things. Because that's who Satan is. And so throughout scriptures, what you see is not just that Satan is a scriptural, I mean a spiritual being, but that he is someone who has this opposition for God. He is the accuser or the opponent of good. In fact, the Hebrew and the Greek words used for Satan throughout the scripture, uh, whenever you see the word Satan, are, are usually these words that mean the accuser or the opponent of good. And you see the meaning of those words definitely describe exactly who the scripture gives us and tells us is Satan. He is someone who is the accuser. He is someone who is the opponent of the, everything which is good. He is seen in the, uh, in, in the Bible and the scriptures as he tempts woman to eat from the tree in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Uh, he's seen as he asks God for permission to tempt Job in Job chapter 1, verse 8. And, and even as he personally tempts Christ, as I've already said, after his baptism in the Jordan River over in Matthew chapter 4. Satan occupies this very deadly spiritual position in this, the spiritual and the physical world. He is part of this world that is not made of flesh and blood, as we read about as we began our study of series on this series. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about that there are those forces not made with flesh and blood that oppose God, and that's exactly where you can number Satan with. He is the one who, who can bring, and his work can bring, eternal destruction to our souls, as Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 9 outlines. It is Satan and his work that brings about the downfall, not just of mankind, but of our own souls. He initiated everything. He put it all into place. you got to think back. Did God create sin? He did not. God created men and women with free moral agency. He created a, a beautiful world and creation around us. And in the beginning, after all that was created, what did God say when he looked back and saw it all? He said, this is, this is good. This is good. Not that this is evil or, hey, this is good with some specks of evil. He said, this is good. All encapsulating good. All the things that God brought about were good, including Satan. To begin with, by the way. Satan was good. And what happened? Well, like man, who has free moral agency, the angels evidently decided they were not too keen on what God wanted for them. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we think about where did he come from. But you see from the very beginning, who is our enemy? Who is the enemy of the camp? We can assuredly wholeheartedly, 100% say the enemy of the camp is Satan. And as we confront and we deal with the, the spiritual effects of sin in our lives, we know we are in a battle with Satan in our lives. Because Satan has brought about these things, he encourages these things, and he continually tempts us and tries us with these things.
Yeah, and Tony, I don't know if y'all were all here, Tony, or not, but Tony makes a good point. It goes back to our decisions and whether or not we decide we are going to trust and obey God or not. And I 100% agree, you're jumping all the way to my conclusion, but you're, uh, there's no doubt in, in my mind that that's exactly the underscore of this whole lesson with regard to Satan. Satan has no power over us unless we give him power over us, right? I mean, it is a choice in our lives. And as we think about what our lives are, the decisions that we make, the places that we go, the people that we're with, all those different intangibles, those things that you cannot always guess or, or think, it boils down to the fact that as long as we choose God's side in all the things, we're going to avoid Satan because Satan's going to flee from us. Right? That's where James talks about in James chapter 1. If you draw close to God, draw near to me. And Satan's going to flee from you because you're, you, you've chosen your side. You're not giving in. You're not, you're not relinquishing that right that you have. You're using your free moral agency to make that firm decision and choice. I'm going to follow after God and not after Satan because whichever way you decide to follow, that makes you subservient to that. And in the, in the end, Satan wants you to become enslaved to him. Now, again, it's our own choices. Satan cannot force you. Satan will not force you into servitude, by the way. Okay? Not forced. Do what? That's right. Oh, yeah, he would. Yes, that's right. Nell's right. He cannot do it. He would if he could. But he's not going to. God's not going to let you. That's why that's the bottom line. Is God has already put that barrier for you. Unless you have agreed, unless you have made that decision and choice to follow after Satan instead of God, God's not going to let him just take your life over. Okay, He's going to let us make that decision in our choice. We can make that choice. You're right, Tony. And in the end, if we don't make that choice, then we're going to find ourselves on the victorious side. If we do make that choice, what the Bible prescribes and tells us that is if we follow that choice to its certain end, we not only have physical death, but we will have spiritual death as well. That's what Jesus said, right? Don't, don't fear those of this world who, who can't destroy both mind and body or body and soul. Fear him who can right, destroy both body and soul. That's the second death. And that's the fearfulness there of having the ultimate death of not just our physical bodies, but it's that when our physical life is over with, that our spiritual life is also in ruin to the point that we are condemned for damnation because of which side we have chosen to fight for the verb. Yeah, and I don't know if y'all, I hope everybody was able to hear Verl. He, thankfully, he's got a loud enough voice, but Satan's dominion is limited. And there, the reason behind that is that Satan didn't create everything. He is not on the same playing field as God. All right, God is the creator, therefore he has the authority and the ability to dictate, control, or affect creation. All right, he has got that ability to do those things that he wants to, right? I mean, he's God. I mean, he can do anything and everything because he is the creator. Unfortunately, with regard to Satan, Satan is not of the same stature. 
And if you're not of the same stature, you do not have those same abilities. You don't have those same options. If Satan were like God, he would have much more disastrous and, and destructive, I believe, uh, mannerisms and maneuvers and, and plans and strategies that he would be invoking. Like Nell said, I think he'd, he'd want to just take over people's lives. But he can't do that. And the reason is because he didn't create you. And so he can't take over you. Same thing about this world. And that's what Job really helps us see to a full extent as to why in the world did Satan have to get God's permission? Or his, I wouldn't say blessing, that's a bad word to use. But why did, why did he have to come to God or did God have to say, well, you're able to do this up unto death? You cannot kill Job. You can do anything you want to to him to affect his life, to affect his person. He is faithful. And you can do anything up unto death. He gives him a limitation. And when you see that limitation, what you're seeing is the authority and the power of God over even Satan. Because what he says to him is, you are not allowed to do this. That shows a limitation of who Satan is. And the biggest reason behind that is he's not equivalent to God. He is not God. He is not the same as God. You cannot put one against the other saying, hey, this is exactly... here." you got God on one hand here and... And opponent number one is Satan on this hand, and they're equally you know, positioned. They're not equally positioned. They're not the same. Now, unfortunately, the world around us... Did you have a comment now? Did I? Right, and that gets into a whole other world of, of discussion about the punishment and the eternality of it. There's very interesting to, to read some people's take on that. Even the Catholic Church themselves, they deal with a purgatory fashion. And the idea of purgatory is that you go there for a time period, and then you are purged of your sins, you are purged of those things, and you're still able to experience those things which are nice and good and eternal life, that kind of stuff. It may not be the same level as those who were faithful. Man, that's not what the Scripture says. You've got one of the two punishment or, or you got punishment or you have life. Eternal punishment or eternal life. Those are the two options in the end. And, and that's really what you see as the end result here is that uh, and Satan actually, by the way, is part of that eternal punishment. He is not, by the way, over hell. Have you ever done a study on that? I don't know if you have or not. Put, put this a note in your Bibles or on a, grab one of those cards in the, in the pew if you want to and just top on there, or right on there, the idea, is Satan the, the, the leader or the commander of hell? You know what? He's not. He's going to be cast into hell just like any other sinner would be. And he's going to face the exact same eternal punishment. He's not sitting up on the throne up in hell dictating to all those else who are foreign. Guess why? The reason is, is because he is a created being just like you and I. And so because of that, he will experience the same condemnation by God, who is the ultimate over heaven and hell. God created hell, by the way, for a specific reason and purpose. I'm not sure we'll get to it today, but there is, a, there is explanation there as to why hell was even created. And that's because of those who disregarded, who were disobedient to him, he fashioned this place as eternal punishment for them. 
includes us. It includes the angels and Satan. Brother Burl. I stole your thunder. All right, well, I'm glad. Right. Oh, I think he knows it true and clear. I think he knows exactly, spiritually speaking, where his destiny lies. Satan knows it. And his hope and, and goal is to bring as many there with him as he can. And it's not that he's going to lord over them or he's the king of hell or he's the lord of hell or whatever phrase you want to use with regard to him. He may be the prince of darkness. He may be, uh, so some of the terms used, <coughs> or the prince of this world, of the earth, prince of the earth, those kind of things. It never, ever says that he's going to rule over hell. Never, ever does. And, and what we've got to do is recheck our minds and our thinking to think about exactly what it means when eternal punishment happens is that it happens to him equally as it happens to you or I. We're in the same boat with Satan. We tie ourselves to him if we become enslaved to him and his schemes on this earth. And we all go down together. And so that's the point to make there is that, that there is an equivalency there. And, and overall, who reigns? God. God reigns over heaven. God reigns over hell. Jesus is going to be the one who judges the living and the dead. Why? Because he's going to sentence them ultimately to heaven or to hell. That authority is placed in God alone, not Satan. He has no place at the table. He is not equivalent with God. And I think that goes back to this question that I have uh, posted on the screen there. And our next point here is, where did Satan come from? It's an intriguing question when you start thinking about it because it becomes a very theological debated type of an, uh, a situation of, of where did Satan come from if he does indeed exist, which we know he exists, if we believe in the Word of God. And again, that's going to be a, a prerequisite for this class. I'm not going to get into why we can believe the Word of God is true. But if we believe the Word of God is true, we have no point but to believe that Satan exists. So the, the question usually arises is where did he come from? It often comes from, of course, young and inquiring minds. I've heard it when I've talked to uh, youth groups before of those trying to figure out exactly what, where is Satan. If you say that God created the whole world, well, how is Satan here? Did God create Satan? You know, and so those questions start coming from inquiring young minds and, and much less sometimes from older, maybe more settled minds. I think it's because sometimes either we study the fact and we don't really deal with it or worry about it, or it's one of those things where we don't want to get embroiled in maybe controversy or those things which are of spiritual um, kind of a focus versus those things which we can grasp and feel. It's something that may be more intangible to us, uh, something that we may have skirted around because it's not very clear or specified in Scripture. And it's not 100% clear. There's no verse in Scripture that says on the first day of creation before God made the heavens and the earth, he also created the angels. It's not there. I wish it were. But when you start looking at the scriptures and start trying to define and see exactly what uh, is included with regard to the creation of, of things in this world, um, what the scriptures do present to us is evidence of, first of all, his existence. And so therefore, there's got to be some type of an explanation that we can garner. I hope there is. I believe that there is. 
but obviously when we want to have the answer to some questions, we want, we want the scriptures to speak to us and speak for us. Uh, when you come to this question, usually there's one or two, real, uh, there's really two options that you can think of. One, that like God, Satan has always existed. If, if Satan exists, one possible explanation, and there are some people that try to argue this, it's called dualty, by the way, and dualism, where you have kind of a, a co-equal quality of an evil being and a good being. If you want to get entrenched in some theological discussions, you can look at dualism, uh, Google it. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, there's no scriptural basis for it, but that's really the first option, is that Satan's always existed. He's like God. He's got no beginning. He has no end. Okay, And so that's one option. The second option is going to be that God created Satan, and so he, was a, he is a creature. He is a creation of God. And then ultimately, the argument's going to be that because he created him, that uh, he ultimately fell. He faltered. He, he made a, a choice. Tony, going back to the idea of trusting, obeying God, this spiritual being that was created, who has seen God, by the way, I think it's an interesting point to make with regard to who Satan is, the angels are spiritual beings. It's not like humans. We haven't seen God, right? Because we're not part of the spiritual realm yet. But these angels have. You've seen whatever you can see with regard to God. Again, we're getting spiritual versus physical here. But the, the idea and concept there is that this created spiritual being knew God. There's no faith, by the way, that you have to have with regard to once you've seen God, right? That's, faith has to do when you can't see something. That's why we are faithful. We are urged to be faithful because that we're, we're believing in the unseen, so to speak. And so we have evidence based upon other things that shows us we can't have faith and assurance in those things, which, who God is and what God is and that God sent his scripture. We can have those faithful things. Well, angels and spiritual beings don't have to have faith. I hope we understand that. There's no faith because it's just a fact. It is a fact. And so when we start talking about angels, when we talk about fallen angels, what we've got to grasp in our minds is the fact that they were placed in a position by God. And you talk about giving up that position. Because of the choices that they make, if we're talking about a fallen angel, they voluntarily, after knowing all those things, spiritually speaking, said, hey, I'm revolting against God. Now, I don't know what you feel about that, but to me, I could see why God would be a little irked, angry, upset, mad about that. You know, I can see it, right? It's not just us who are, are walking by faith and not by sight, turning our backs, so to speak, on God. All right. Again, that's not a good thing either. Don't get me wrong. But the idea and concept that you've got spiritual beings created by God, sitting at God's throne, being around God. Job chapter one talks about Satan approaching God. He's there in his midst. That's the kind of relationship that he gave up as a fallen angel. And so the two options, obviously, where did he come from? One is always equal. Uh, two explanations would be that uh, one, he, uh, I'm sorry, I'm hitting the wrong button here. Um, oh, I just pushed back. Uh, like God, Satan's always existed, or God created Satan and he fell from heaven. The second one is going to be the only one that is supported by biblical evidence. When you look at the explanations of where did Satan come from? And I want to try and walk through that. I'm not going to get done because the bell's about to ring on me in just a second. But as you look at, as, at the scriptures, and as you look at an examination of these things, these two different points here, we're going to gain a little bit more information with respect to some spiritual insight on Satan's beginnings. Real quickly, think about this. Where did he come from with regard to 
being created. First of all, he is a created being. So therefore, we're going to nullify the fact that he has always been, that he has no beginning or no end. Now, I would argue he was he's immortal like God. He is not eternal like God. And again, I don't want to get into a semantics argument, but when you think about eternality, eternality really evokes an idea and a concept that you have no beginning and no end. Eternal. Okay, no beginning, no end. Um, and so that's what you deal with with regard to God. God is eternal. There is no beginning. There is no end of God. It's a concept that just kind of blows our minds, right? I mean, it's because we want there to be a beginning. That's the physical side of us coming out. But with regard to Satan, there was a beginning. He's a created being, but there may not, there's no end. Like us, as a spiritual being, by the way, we also are immortal. Have you ever thought of that? Not our physical bodies, but our souls we are immortal. We're not going to, our souls will, well, I guess you could say second death maybe. Second death is usually a hyperbole of, of eternal damnation. Um, but, you know, we're going to, our souls will, will continue to live and survive outside of our, our physical bodies. So we have no end, spiritually speaking. But what we want to look at as we come back next week, and as we think about this idea of where did Satan come from, I want us to look at the idea of, of what did God create because if he's a created being, we should be able to look and point to some scriptures, and I've already kind of given you Colossians 1 up there, that you can look at and see that God created Satan. Not maybe in the choice and the nature that he is now. Satan made his own choices. But there was a created being that was made by God that we can see that likely became who Satan is today. We're going to pick up here next week. Thank you so much for your great comments, your questions, and your involvement in class.